listening to OT Uncorked. I'm your host, Miranda Rennie. On OT Uncorked, we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine. I am so excited to share this episode with you about keeping practice occupation-based. Becky brings 18 years of clinical experience, including time as a clinical coordinator in inpatient rehab and as an academic fieldwork advisor. She and her team transformed the culture of their workplace and are a really good example of demonstrating the distinct value of OT. having a glass of wine with me today? I am not a wine drinker. I'm not. My um, We've done the whole Napa Valley thing, my husband and I have, and I was so hoping, you know, that might change me to enjoy wine, but I really just enjoy enjoyed uh, the chocolate and wine pairing. <laughs> so my husband drank my wine and I ate his chocolate. <laughs> I'm really not sure who got the better deal there. <laughs> yes. So I try to make the episodes match up with the wine that I choose, sure. but as I always say, that's not going to last me very long. So there's no association today. I'm drinking a Coast Road Collection Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's from California. I, I guess there is kind of a loose connection in that I met you in California, but that's a little bit of a stretch because I also happen to live here now. So, Well, I didn't live in California. I don't live in California. So, <laughs> Well, that is true. So that'll be my connection for this episode. <laughs> but nonetheless, let's get into the real juice here. Why don't we start by having you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Becky Piazza, and I've been an occupational therapist for uh, a little over 18 years. And um, I graduated from the University of Florida's OT program back in 2001 with my bachelor's and um, had my fieldwork affiliations in two adult rotations, but I swore I was going to be a pediatric OT. That's why I went to OT school with a voice like mine. I I thought I would be set for working with little children and um, didn't get peds rotations. I got geriatrics, actually finished my rotations. And my first job was a school-based OT, which I thought literally would be my dream job. But while I was doing my fieldwork rotations, I just fell in love with the adults and geriatric populations, specifically inpatient rehab, just fell in love with it. So I did the peds thing for about a year because I was so determined to be a peds therapist, but my true calling was inpatient rehab. So I worked in inpatient rehab doing both inpatient and outpatient adult neuro for the majority of my career, um, loving every single moment of it, and then um, went back to school to get my master's in OT about 10 years after I was practicing as a clinician. I just... Um, I kind of needed to reignite my sparkle a little bit, and I love OT. I just love everything about occupational therapy. Um, I just had gotten a little bit 
I don't know that burnt out is the right word. I just ha- I just needed to be invigorated a little bit. And so I decided going back to school would assist with that. And it, it surely did. And um, again, I live in Florida. So I wanted a program that was as far away from my Florida culture as I could get. So I went to um, San Jose State University, did an online post-professional master's degree and um, was fabulous. <laughs> and my worldview expanded quite a bit. Uh, under the tutelage of all of the professors and faculty out there, um, continued to work throughout that all of that time. And right before I went back for my master's, I was promoted to a managerial position where I was still doing direct client care, but also the position was called a clinical coordinator. So over the occupational therapy and recreational therapy programs at the inpatient rehab hospital, I was working at a 40-bed inpatient rehab hospital. And um, so going back to school, I felt like if if I was going to be a good leader and I was going to hold our staff to a certain level of expectations of professional development, best practice, just really owning our our OT essence, I needed to model that. So going back to school really kick-started my, my love of OT and ramped up my, my approach to leadership and starting to, to identify myself as a leader. And then I went back to get my OTD two years ago and finished that through Chatham University. So I'm still a treating clinician. I actually um, transitioned from the inpatient rehab setting. There was a change in ownership and some changes there. So I now do adult outpatient, actually uh, post-concussion and work in a multidisciplinary clinic, which is really exciting and a great opportunity. And at the same time, I work full-time as an academic fieldwork coordinator for the University of St. Augustine. So um, I just I just love it. I love everything about OT. I love the connection with clinicians all over, you know, internationally, all over here locally. Um it's just such a beautiful profession to embrace our differences, but also root ourselves in literally hope, you know, hope and potential, hope and abilities, and getting to the root of helping, coming alongside people to help them achieve what it is they need to achieve, and also discover. So many of our patients, they're not sure why they want to get better or need to get better. And it's such a introspective, soul-searching journey of recovery and identity establishment and um, choosing their definitions of what health and wellness mean. And all along that road, I get to revisit those things all the time with my colleagues, you know, and with the clients and with their caregivers. So who wouldn't love that job? You know, it's, it's, it's just awesome. So that's a little bit about me. I married my high school sweetheart. He's super handsome. Have two kids. (laughs) My daughter just turned 16, getting her driver's license tomorrow. My son's almost 14. So that's kind of a little bit about me. I think you should be on a commercial advertising occupational therapy. You, you really <laughs> captured what makes our profession special. And just hearing about your personal journey as an OT, I hear this theme of every couple of years needing to reignite your spark. I heard some words like that and, and renewal. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's kind of part of what I hope to do with this podcast, you know, when people get discouraged or bogged down by some of the policy issues 
or other things that get in the way of us doing our jobs as beautifully as you just described. I hope they can listen to these conversations and get the spark that they need just to get through their day. Right. And, and you really emphasized the uniqueness of OT and this really special journey that we go on with each one of our patients. I'm curious at what point in your career you started to notice that maybe yourself or your colleagues weren't quite optimizing or making the most of the unique occupational perspective that OT is supposed to bring to the rehab team? So I think it was almost like a great awakening in our clinical department. And there's so many variables to that, Miranda, because I love the people I work with, phenomenal people. I mean, just just the best. And I think a lot of what we were able to do, which I'll explain in a minute, was because of that collegial trust in one another and in that reciprocal push back and forth. Okay, I'm going to push the envelope a little bit. Let's see who joins me or if I'm out here all alone. Um, but really, I think it was moving into my my position as the clinical coordinator and realizing with great leadership comes great responsibility. That to me, I that was the what was front and center for me. And and not only wanting to do great service for our clients, but I was proud of our hospital. You know, I'm proud of the work we do and the miracles that we're a part of. So I instinctively wanted to elevate that and be a promoter of that. And you can't promote that without promoting the people behind those miracles, which are, you know, which were my interdisciplinary colleagues. And then the the human side or those patient success stories, I was helping with our uh, marketing and public relations team. I was always feeding them success stories, working very hard to be balanced to not just talk about OT, but I was <laughs> feeding them success stories quite a bit. And a lot of the success stories that people really identified with were a lot of our OT success stories. And those were truly getting our patients back to doing things they enjoyed. You know, we didn't have these great video publicity on, look, they got dressed, you know, even though that was 90% of our work on their ADLs and, you know, all of those things, which are those stepping stones to returning to your occupational engagement. But it was, it was like the final tier of, okay, we've just done several weeks of rehab and it's culminating in a community outing of some sort. And it was really when I started to analyze the effectiveness of our OT treatment sessions and our outcomes, which in inpatient rehab at that time was the FIM, the Functional Independent Measure, which has, was just removed just a couple months ago. But at that time, the FIM drove everything, like everything was focused on FIM. And, you know, the FIM scores don't really capture the essence of a person's wholeness, a person's livelihood, a person's purpose. So we had to get really good. Uh, and I say we, because it was building capacity and championing our occupational therapists, their documentation. And I, and Miranda, that really, the documentation was the driving force for embracing occupation in our clinical setting, because it was through, 
It was through reintroducing occupational terminology. It was prioritizing the OT team um, being familiar with our OT practice framework and not just familiar, but reading it. We I scheduled multiple in-services surrounding our practice framework. We had lots of fieldwork education students year-round, so I ensured that every student's project, the root and infrastructure of their project, focused on embracing the terminolo- occupational terminology. Um, and that's where we started. We started at looking at our terminology, and I was in this beautiful position because as a treating clinician, I'd been there for 10 plus years. I had this amazing team that trusted me and and I wanted to do a good job for them. And I was also in charge of our electronic medical record transition from paper to to what we were using, which was Epic. So with all of those variables all together, I was able to start enhancing the medical record to include occupational terminology. So what our clinicians, our OTs, as we went through, and this was this was a several year process. I talk about it like it was like it took two weeks, and ha, <laughs> ah, we're there, you know. But you know, success is not always linear; <laughs> it's backwards and forwards. That is um, so true. And it was it required a commitment on my end because your team your team's going to prioritize what they know their boss or their leader is prioritizing. They're going to focus on what they know their boss or leader is going to be holding them accountable to. So it required an immense amount of energy on my part with chart reviews, truly reviewing the charts. Um, And I would pull out great documentation amongst the OTs. And we would showcase that every month in our our uh, monthly OT meetings. So it became a thing amongst our team to really want their documentation to be what showed up in that staff meeting, you know, and, and it wasn't, oh, I'm better than you. It was really this building capacity for this culture of look, look at what we were able to capture versus, yeah, they got dressed, blah, 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 but we're able to link it back to the occupational components. And so the documentation started to take on this new life of itself. And as you probably know, when people feel empowered and that they're recognized for their efforts, the ball just keeps rolling. So it was through our documentation that really started driving the team to relook at what we were doing. And, and to be honest, the team was already doing occupation-based care. They just weren't documenting it. So it wasn't being elevated amongst amongst our hospital. So we did a couple different things. Our whole team, our OT team, we did brainstorming sessions. And this was several weeks where all of the OTs were asked by me to come up with an occupation-based station. Um, so, and they were grouped into at least, pay, you know, twos or threes. And so it it wasn't optional to participate. This was our whole team was going to do this, but they ha- their choice was in what type of occupation-based station were they going to come up with. And they were going to take ownership of obtaining the supplies on a zero budget. And they were going to take ownership of embracing it and using it with their clients and then teaching the other team the other team members. And that took off really well. Some of the some of the therapists bought into it much quicker than the others, but when they saw when they saw the patients having fun and actually when our other colleagues our speech therapists and our PTs saw it they started coming down to our area and wanting to be a part of it <laughs> and so cool. it just it just was this natural 
building of OT's distinct value in, in our clinical setting. And with the right backing and the right terminology, not just in the medical record, but also keying into all of our AOTA resources and really empowering our team to look beyond just what was happening in the walls of our hospital, to, to really look broader at what our profession was doing as a, as a whole and realizing that our distinct value and our effectiveness could be measured by the things that we already knew were the roots of, of OT. And so the occupation-based stations, we had like a mechanic station, an office station, obviously cooking and laundry station. We had outdoor station, which was like car washing and gardening. And then we had, um, what other stations did we have? We had like a computer station. We had, oh, a pet care station, you know, all practicing with the kitty litter and everything like that. And so we utilize all of our modalities, all of our interventions that you would expect in an inpatient rehab hospital, along with those occupational engagement activities versus just sitting in the gym with e-stem on and doing reps. You know, it's like, let's, let's incorporate this with actually picking up the broom or, you know, whatever it was. And it required work and effort, Miranda. And if we weren't championing a culture change, it likely would have died out pretty quickly. Um, but the staff's work and effort was recognized, um, and it just it became a thing like, "Hey, we're we're pretty good," and we had students wanting to come to our hospital for their clinical rotations, and that turned into students then wanting to work at our hospital because they saw occupation front and center. So it was just, it built into, to where we then as a department, we were able to prioritize community outings. And that became, instead of just a once in a while thing, it became a multiple outings a week where the OTs were leading those outings and getting people in their naturalistic environments. And that was like the culmination of their rehab stay. And our medical director just loved it. And when the medical director loves something, it gets back. <laughs> so, yeah, and at the root of all that was occupational participation and occupational performance and just really teaching and modeling it. I, I had to model it too, Miranda. I couldn't just be leading the charge and sitting in my office. You know, I had to be out there with the with the patients doing the same thing. And um, that allowed continued trust amongst our team. And some of the staff were really good at some components of it, and some were really good at others. And so as a group, we were really good at all of it. And so it's just, it was just a, a natural evolution that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't specifically rooted ourselves in occupational terminology and made some long-term goals and then we worked back from the long-term goals. Like we literally set out, okay, in two years, this is what we want to be doing as a department. And we backtracked and started, we did an activity analysis of where we wanted to go. And OTs are really good at that. So <laughs> that is very Yeah, true. so that's that's a little bit about it at the at the inpatient rehab hospital. You just said so much that I would love <laughs> to unpack because truly I think there is a deficit of these types of initiatives out in the field. Mm -hmm. And I don't mm -hmm. think it's because people don't want to be occupation-based right. or evidence-based. But there are truly lots of challenges to overcome, mm -hmm. and you highlighted some of them. 
So let's talk more about what this looks like on the ground level. You mentioned Mm -hmm. that this initiative kind of got its start because in your organization, you all really started to just document what you were actually doing and highlight the value of occupation-based therapy. And I love that because Mm -hmm. what you pointed out was that they were already good at their jobs, right? And of course, we can all be better and challenge each other and ourselves to grow. But this attitude Mm -hmm. of understanding and recognizing that people truly know what they're doing and are doing a good job as therapists, I think is really the sweet spot to Mm -hmm. encouraging people to highlight their value and share that in the medical record. Right. Absolutely. And and it also... You know, they didn't need to change what they were doing. We just needed to enhance it. And and they needed to recontextualize what they were doing was occupation based. They just weren't they weren't articulating it or elevating it as that. And so in the inpatient rehab hospital at this time, the majority of the OTs would see the patients twice a day. They'd have a morning session for an ADL and an afternoon session for non-ADL or whatever it was. So even in the morning sessions with ADLs, we're working on dressing, bathing, toileting, showering, but we would frame that towards our goal of what the community outing was going to be. So when we framed it in occupation, okay, well, if we're going to get ready and be on time, we can't spend 25 minutes putting our shirt on. So then it became prioritizing time as a component of occupational engagement, which then touches on previous routines, which then touched on, okay, are you a morning person or a night person? And for OTs, this just makes sense. You know, are you getting dolled up or are you good to go without mascara? You know, these are important things. And um, so no one else is talking to the to the patients about this stuff. This is this is OT's world. This is OT's domain. And that was that was what I always was reminding our team was that no one else is going to be addressing these purposeful and meaning activities in the way we can. We get paid to do this. Like, why are we not looking like occupational therapists? Like, we're here to be paid to do this. And if we can do it and meet the demands of our daily job, which is getting the FEM scores at that time, you know, getting the right number of hours in of therapy per day, getting our units and our minutes in, if we can make all of that work, then the patient satisfaction is going to increase. So that was a goal of the hospital. Employee engagement would rise. That's a goal of the hospital. We would have things to showcase for our accreditation standards. That's a that's a goal for the hospital. So I just had to be really strategic in finding those win-wins. So if I can find a win that embraces occupation and it matches our departmental goals and our hospital goals, well, our our administrators are going to say, yes, do that, Becky. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, okay, we're going to do this. But we have to be strategic in all the 
all the occupational therapists had to be knowledgeable of those key strategies as well. Like we're we're doing this, we're we're a, we're having a computer station and a business office occupation station because we're going to highlight interactive technology. And inter- interactive technology is a key driver at that time with our CARF accreditation standards for the rehab hospital. So it's like closing the loop and empowering the therapist to understand why we were doing what we were doing. And then in those surveys and interviews, they didn't need me to sit in there to remind them they they were doing it. So then the staff are then empowered to own best practice. And when you have staff empowered to own best practice, it's like, woohoo, you know, <laughs> like, yay, we're all, we're all working hard. Now, I, I don't mean to pose it as like this utopia, Miranda, because there were hard days. And, you know, especially in inpatient rehab, your, your schedule doesn't go as planned and patients get sent out. And, you know, there's people call out sick and there's, you know, there's all that boots on the ground stuff. But as, a, as an OT, and that's my first and foremost identity, an occupational therapist, my second is a colleague. You know, my third was as the coordinator. My job was to make their job easy. <laughs> you know, my job was to, to get those barriers out of the way so that they could do those fun things. So um, timing, timing and making this stuff work was, was a lot of work logistically. And I'm speaking in the past tense because I'm not currently doing the position now as of just a few months ago. But um, again, that was my job. So the OTs, what do you guys, what's the plan? What do you want to do? Okay, let me figure out the logistics while you go treat your other patient. And then we'll come back and meet at the end of the day and make sure we're all on the same page. Um, A lot of those logistics and planning, if you don't have a point person in your setting to help with that, it's too much work. The therapists don't have time to do that. And it's hard. So they're going to prioritize what they can get done versus big, big picture planning. And then they are at work three hours later doing their documentation, like, Work-life balance has always been a big goal. So you just, you have to understand which people are going to be your champions of these things. And you, you help empower your champions to, to practice in a consistent manner that raises the bar in the, in the setting. And we were able to do that. I'd like to circle back on documentation. Sure. So I worked in inpatient rehab for a brief stint. It's definitely a, a demanding setting. And I relate to that struggle of staying late to document, but also trying to have robust documentation Mm -hmm. that shows the value of what I was doing with my patients. And I think there's this perception, I know that I certainly have struggled with this, that to have robust documentation means a sacrifice of your time that to do this takes a lot longer than documenting the current way so can you comment on that idea or maybe it's a myth i'll let you decide no no it's totally doable and that's where knowing your practice framework you just need to know your your ot practice framework i mean all the terms you need to 
to catapult occupation are right there. So we really started with a big focus on environmental context and then the activity demands of, of occupational participation. So even just getting the, the OTs to use the word like activity demands or occupational choice, like you know, like that's where we started. Throw occupational participation or occupational choice somewhere <laughs> into your documentation. And, you know, you don't change anything else. Just throw that word in there somewhere to, to get started. And then what this, when we would recognize that in our OT staff meetings and the, the staff used to tease me because they'd say, just throw occupational in front of any <laughs> word you can. It's like, well, not really, but yeah, do that. <laughs> well, that's a starting point, right? <laughs> right. So it was with semantics. Like instead of saying, you know, the patient participated in ADLs, we would say the patient participated in occupations of choice consisting of bathing and grooming. You know, so there's occupations, but then you also have the collaborative nature of the patient got to choose. And we even had one of our therapists even start you taking that to the next level where she would say occupational preferences with clothing choices, you know, like, were they going to put a button down shirt on or not? So it's semantics, you know, Miranda, but also, also getting getting comfortable with using the terminology. Um, we revisited activity analysis quite a bit, which, you know, the nuts and bolts of what we do and really framed it in so many therapists. I feel like in our therapy world culture, look for, you know, I need another credential or an advancement or I, I need to keep growing or whatever, a specialty, which is all well and good. And I'm, and I'm all for specializations. Um, but, and, and I have my board certification in physical rehab because I feel it's important, you know, but um, I think sometimes our profession forgets that occupation-based care is a specialty. Like it is a specialty and not all clinicians are practicing in that manner. So to frame it as a specialty, which it is, and then to tie the documentation to what what's in the way of you being able to do the things you have to do, want to do, or need to do. So that had us start exploring. Um, we dove deep into what were occupations we were missing. And so that led to a whole group of our OTs really focusing on sleep. And that grew over time into a big sleep research study that was led by our OT team, um, which again, I say it like, oh, it happened in a week. It was like a two year, you know, effort led by our OTs on first starting with sleep education, sleep hygiene, is sleep going to affect outcomes? Because remember that win-win OT and the hospital. Um, so we, we were able to move towards, you know, focus on sleep. We were able to move towards um, a heightened awareness of our OTs on bladder incontinence. And, you know, that was always kind of nursing's area, but our OT team saw the importance of really healthy pelvic floor and how that tied into um, managing bladder incontinence and bladder urgency, which affects the environment you're in and your mobility to get to the restroom, um, you know, and how that taps into your routine and the clothes you wear and blah, blah, blah. So 
the, the more we got focused on, on occupation, the more the team just was like, well, everything's an occupation. And that was the goal. Yes, everything's and even thinking, being able to think is, is an occupation. You know, we were able to start thinking about, well, reading and reading made us put a higher focus on our visual uh, perceptual assessments, you know, so I wish I could answer your question in a very, very tight little box and tie it up. But it was at the end of the day, it was elevating the use of our practice framework and showcasing the therapists who were doing that to where it became natural for them to speak that language. And, you know, documentation is a beast wherever you go. You know, so you pick and choose your battles and where you're going to, you know, where you're going to make it robust and where you're going to kind of stick to meat and potatoes. And sure, do a meat and potatoes note in the morning, but get get your afternoon one. Make sure there's occupation in there. Kind of like that. You've given us a really great starting point to help us document in a way that really captures what we do. Just starting to use that terminology is huge, I think. Personally, I know I have the OT practice framework both on my physical desk and I have the PDF on my desktop on my computer as a reminder when I start to go down a rabbit hole or really get away from the core of our practice. I just find that really helpful to recenter me on occupational terminology. Right. Another factor at play here that I've noticed is that when the OTPF was updated in 2014, some of the language and structure used to discuss occupation and occupational therapy practices were changed. So there's almost a different language at times being spoken by more seasoned clinicians Mm -hmm. versus some of the people entering the field since the OTPF update. Right. So... Some clinicians who are now in a managerial role may not be as in tune with some of those changes and some of that new vocabulary that's being infused into the profession. So for example, on field work, and truthfully, even when I started working as an OT, I would sometimes document words straight from the framework, you know, being really intentional about incorporating that occupation-centered language. And I would occasionally have my supervisor come to me and say, that was a really odd choice of word, or that word just really doesn't fit there. What were you trying to say? And then I would direct them back to the framework and show them that really that word choice was from the framework and was, in my opinion, capturing what we were doing. And I think that's just something that happens through, you know, generations of practice. So do you have any recommendations for people whose managers or colleagues or supervisors may not be as in tune with some of that updated occupational terminology? Mm -hmm. So that is a loaded question because my first thought goes to how important it is that we are members of our state and national association and that we we are linked in to to the to the momentum and the trajectory of our state and national associations. You have quite a bit of experience serving on the national and local level, is that right? 
Yes. Yes. And, you know, I didn't always, Miranda, like my, my first, probably my first eight years of clinical practice was go to work and make sure I don't mess up, you know, like, <laughs> yes, I, I do know, <laughs> you know, building, right. Building my competencies, building my confidence, you know, um, even today, 18 years of clinical practice, I'm still like, oh, I don't know everything. I don't know what I'm doing. And my, I must say that to my husband all the time. And my husband's always like, Beck, you know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like, okay, I know what I'm doing. And, I, and we do, you know, Marina, we do know what we're doing. I think effective leadership, though, um, not, not everyone has that personal value and commitment to professional involvement. But if you're going to be a, a great leader, you, you need to be involved in your state national. So, I mean, I, I don't mean to make it sound like so cut and dry, but how can you lead? Right. You, you, there's no, um, there's no solo leaders. Like you, I don't, I just feel like that's so important. And then, you know, we, we are so connected with social media and blogs and different updates, you know, it was join some listservs, join some something. And eventually you start to see different things coming up around the pike where you key into key drivers for effective outcomes. Um, and I was a big one, even now, like I can really get focused on, on just looking at OT things, but that's short-sighted. I have to look at broader what's going on in the healthcare system and not just OT if I'm going going to stay abreast. Otherwise, we'll work ourselves into a little hole, you know? So for those leaders who, who might not be tapped into that, my answer is students. You take students. You take field work, level two field work education students and you optimize what they're doing at your site. You know, they have to do a project. They have to do an in-service. So utilize your students who are abreast of those things to bring a journal, you know, bring a journal article in and present on the journal. Or we, we used our students in massive ways. I mean, our students really did the legwork of most of our quality improvement or programmatic initiatives. And um, um, and that takes planning too, Miranda, you know, a big picture of planning. But if you put the time in on the front end, all of a sudden you have all of these program initiatives that are requiring very little work of your team because you have these students who are harnessing the literature and getting it prepped. And, and, and in our setting, a lot of those students turned into our employees, you know, so they, they, they already were bought into it. Um, so I know sometimes management, management's like going to the dark side sometimes because you go from the, you know, idealistic patients getting better and your patients love you. Hopefully most of them do, you know, but you get a lot of personal affirmation from your patients a lot of times. And when you transition to management, especially like that middle management area, it can get a little bit taxing because you end up putting fires out or people are unhappy or you don't always get a pat on the back for thanks for being awesome. You know, you don't get a whole lot of that. So that can be, that can be hard for managers themselves to stay intrinsically motivated on looking beyond just the fires they're putting out every day. And in that regard, the best advice I ever got was I always needed to identify a mentor for myself. Even now, 18 years after clinical practice, I have mentors, professional mentors in my life um, that help me think beyond 
just what I'm doing. Um, so that's probably my best advice is be a part of, be a member of your national and state association, you know, utilize level two fieldwork students, you know, having students from multiple academic institutions broadens your perspective on clinical practice anyway, because each program has a different feel to it. And then, you know, have a mentor. And AOTA has tons of ways to have mentors. And I did the um, leadership development for middle managers several years ago, which was just life-changing for me, like breathing life into me as a professional. I mean, just phenomenal, Miranda, because you get around other people, like-minded people, and you realize, hey, I can do this, you know? I, And I'm always teaching my clients and even my colleagues, you got to believe in yourself. You can do this, you know? But then I struggle with the very same thing, like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? <laughs> but when, when you... When you just say yes, just put yourself out there, just say yes, try it. All of a sudden you have fuel for your fire and you don't feel so alone trying to make things better. Even in a healthcare system where there's a lot of junk, you're still working with people that you can do the little things to make that person better with the long-term goal of enhancing systems and processes. But it starts with the person, and OTs are really good at that. I really appreciate what you said about the value of students. You mentioned they do a lot of the legwork, and you identified that with that, they bring a lot of value and offer quite a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, perspectives from their educational background, you know, that energy and excitement about occupation-based practice because that is being emphasized in academic programs yes. now quite a lot, which is yeah. a great paradigm shift that they can help inform occupation-based practice where maybe that oh, yeah, has been yeah. lost a little bit. And the reason why I bring that up is because I do know there are quite a few students that listen to this podcast and I want them to hear that we are all growing, even the supervisors and colleagues that have lots of experience can benefit from their knowledge. I think there's so many opportunities for reciprocal learning. So I just want to say we need to be confident in what we bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, you just told us the impact that students had on your organization's culture shift. And that's just mm -hmm. worth highlighting. Absolutely. And, you know, they, with students will, students will produce at the level of the expectation you put out there. So the, the level two students who came to our site, they knew within the first week or two, they were, they were not just going to, I didn't want the students to do a project just as busy work. Who likes busy work? You know, like, so I, I didn't even assign their project, Miranda, until week six of their 12-week rotation because the expectation was you need to learn our culture. You need to understand how things work here. You need to be safe with your clients and really have your, your mind focused on your, your fieldwork educator and what you're learning. At week six, we're going to talk collaboratively, and I'm going to share with you a few ideas that will harness goals for the department that we're already moving in. And then you as the student, you tell me which one lights you up, which one seems most interesting. Now, that was a lot of work on my end to have that ready. But the, the hard work on the front end 
huge dividends on the back end. So it was worth it to, to do that. And um, it was clear, clear expectations from week one, there's going to be a project and it's going to be a formal in-service in front of the staff. We're going to have a PowerPoint and we're going to frame the PowerPoint with your, with your references because your PowerPoint will likely be used for a state or national presentation. So when you put it out there at the beginning, okay, the student knows I'm not messing around, you know, and this, it's not just something you're going to pull out, you know, the night before. Um, and then being really clear with the expectations. And I would always email them and kind of list everything out and bullet it. And I'd help them establish the objectives and I'd give them resources. So it wasn't just like, here, student do this huge project for me that I don't want to do and do it well, you know, like, no, 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 you know, this is mentorship and growth and development. So where whatever the student chose, whatever, um, like we, we operated in teams. So if I have a student working with the spinal cord injury team with our lead OT on spinal cord injury, obviously the project's going to be related to spinal cord injury. So their fieldwork educator bought into it and could serve as a mentor and a resource. So um, that, yeah, the student and the students get credit for it. You know, I, we had students who then they took their ideas and, and took it further and presented posters and, you know, took, took those things to their, fir- you know, their first job. I, I did a fieldwork site visit just the other day and, and just randomly ran into a student that we'd had several years ago, which was so wonderful to see her. And I remembered her right away and she did me as well. And she immediately started talking about what she had done at the rehab hospital. And, and she, she did a whole in-service on the Kawa model. I don't know if you're familiar with that, which was, was it, she was introducing it to our team for the very first time. And that was around the time we had just started diving into motivational interviewing and how to utilize that in our practice. So it was perfect. And I ran into her and she's like, I'm using the Kawa model, (laughs) you know, so it was beneficial for us, but also beneficial for her. So, so yeah, students, sometimes it's tricky to know how to harness the power of the students, but that's why you have academic fieldwork coordinators at every academic institution who can help any, anyone who's interested in harnessing that, you have the academic fieldwork coordinators. And now with OTD programs, you have the doc coordinators, the doctoral coordinators, and you have those students looking for capstone ideas for their OTD programs. So when you find the right student and they're interested in it, there you go. You, you got what you need. So you mentioned academic fieldwork coordinators as a great resource for both the students and the mentors to really help facilitate a win-win fieldwork situation for everybody. And you've also mentioned throughout this talk that AOTA has a lot of good resources, again, for both the students and practitioners, you know, related to fieldwork and a wide range of other topics. Mm-hmm. And I know personally that whenever I go to an AOTA event, I hear about some of these resources that exist and I'm always blown away and excited to look into them. So I know there's a lot of really good hidden treasures that AOTA provides that I know at least I'm not aware of. So off the top of your head, do you happen to have any recommendations of maybe must-see resources, so to speak, or things that you would recommend we check out? Oh, there's so many, but probably the, I mean, obviously getting familiar with the AOTA uh, website, but really I think when you like, when you join and you like the AOTA Facebook page and even like Twitter, like 
you get instant feeds of stuff going on right in front of you. So that's probably that's probably my recommendation. So rather than hunting for it, it's just coming to you in your social media feed. And that's one way to be aware of things. Um, AOTA, of course, has the OT Practice Magazine, which is just, if, if you take time to read through that, I mean, just a wealth of information on what's coming, what's going on, what to be aware of. Um, I I literally used to schedule time in my workday. This sounds crazy, but I literally scheduled time in my workday to make sure I stayed aware of what, like I checked the AOTA website. I, you know, go through my AOTA practice just to keep my head abreast of things because it's, it's too much information you know it's like drinking from a from a fire hydrant so so that was that's always been my technique Miranda and then you can sign up to be a volunteer through the cool database you know you can um, indicate your interest in special interest sections and sign up for listservs and you get instant emails related to those topics Um, so if you're really into peds or sensory integration or school-based practice or you know vision or whatever it is um there, there's just so, so many attending student conclave, you know, AOTA student conclave is a huge way to kind of know what's out there. Um, but also just choosing a mentor and ideally a mentor who is an AOTA member and you, you immediately have a connection there. Um, you can starting serving on the, you know, as a student ambassador, you know, that the student delegates, all those kind of things are easy ways to, to get connected to those free resources you have there. But it takes time, you know, it takes time. I had a student ask me one time, you know, what, what, what is your recommendation, Becky? You know, how, how can I be a great OT? And I was like, read, just read, you know, <laughs> just, just read. There's so much, just pick something and read it. <laughs> well, and it sounds so simple, but it really is overwhelming and hard. You know, we right. know that we should be in the literature and we know we should be staying abreast of current practices. So one thing I've been at least trying to do in my own life I've sort of been seeing things lately in terms of trade-ups. So how can I make a trade-up during my day to really make time for some of these these things that I know are really important, but I'm not necessarily making the time for? So for example, you know, I take the bus into work. So instead of mindlessly scrolling through social media, I've been thinking, what trade-ups can I make where I'm reading literature or even this one, which is not even a huge trade-up, opening up Twitter or Facebook and seeing what AOTA or my state organization or other OT-related pages have posted and reading an article while I'm sitting on the bus. You know, it's finding those moments and making that trade-up and making that choice to dedicate more time towards what we know is really important professionally. But it is really hard, and I'm definitely still trying to navigate that myself, so... Right, right. And or, or you, you know, you have, you just feel like it's so overwhelming. And I know I was guilty of this too. I was like, well, you know, the AOTA, the AOTA stuff is great, but they don't really get that I'm on the ground, boots on the ground. Like it's all these PhD people and, you know, they're in research labs and they don't really know about my crazy schedule and no lunch and no time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like, where's the resource on that, you know? And, and that was a misperception. 
decision on my part. You know, once I once I truly didn't just join but got involved, you know, really getting involved and serving and making myself available, I realized, gosh, these, these are, this is my family, you know, this is my OT family. And we all have different roles and strengths that we offer. And, but we all have a place. And and Jenny Stoffel, our our previous AOTA president before Amy Lamb, she used to say every member a leader. And I remember she she used to say that. And I thought, she's so right. You know, every member a leader, we all we all have something to contribute and you might not be waving the banner of, you know, professional association membership, but you should be, <laughs> but you know, you, you might be waving the banner of, you know what, you're an expert in burn care and there's not tons of those all over the place. So you share your expertise somehow, join a special interest section, and now you're connected with other people in your own area of specialty and a resource for those who want to get into that area of specialty. Like, just give back to your profession. We're all better. You know, we're we're better together. That's what I always used to say. I still say it. We're better together. Like, we just are. It's the truth. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And on the note of teamwork and collaboration, You have shared so much about the awesome changes you saw in your organization and how you and your colleagues really work together to change the culture and really enhance the practice and the care that you are providing. And I think this is going to be really encouraging to some of the people listening because I know that I've I hear friends who are OTs talk about this. I see conversations on Twitter and Facebook about this, that we want change, but we don't always know how to go about that. So I think today you've provided with us with a lot of very helpful tips for moving the needle forward on that one. So I can't help but think though, you know, what are some of the outcomes of this? You know, there have to be some success stories that really show why this is what we need to be doing. So is there a story that comes to mind that can really hit this point home for us? So most of those stories culminate in in the short-term goals while they're inpatient while the patients were inpatient um during their stay leading towards discharge. And a lot of those built up to, we would do um, pre-discharge home assessment visits where we were going into the home and doing a home eval. So the success story of everything we practiced in the hospital and the simulated environment, doing the home eval and doing it in their home. And then now you don't you're not just looking at the physical component, but you're literally seeing the social environment of their home and you're seeing your client in what real life looks looks for them. And I mean, so many, with just the home assessment visits, so many of the patients where you didn't realize they had a light until they got into their house and, and like the light turned on in their face, you know, that their, their eyes lit up and what, what the environment of home means. And then when, once you, once we started seeing this, I had this one, this tiny little petite lady and um, she just, we could not get her engaging in things. I mean, she was just, she'd been in the hospital a long time. She's very sick. Um, there were issues, there were family issues going on, like fighting over financial issues and her significant other and her sister didn't get along and they were vying for who was going to be, you know, her primary caregiver, blah, blah, blah. And she just was 
so defeated. And she was somewhat of a high risk to take out of the building, but we worked our way up several weeks over time to prepare for that. And um, I remember going to, she lived in a single wide mobile home and and, and we had, we were able to do this at the rehab hospital. We scheduled it as a part of their three hours of therapy. We only did home assessment visits with, within a certain radius of the hospital um, because of the traveling time. And an OT partnered with our recreational therapist. So there were always two staff members and the rec therapist we utilized, she was awesome, but OT, it was billable therapy. The rec therapist time, we didn't have to worry about billable therapy time for her. So it fit. It was a win-win for the department. And we took this little lady to her single wide mobile home, practiced the stairs, and she we were practicing in the bathroom. And she went into her bedroom and she started to take her clothes off. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, (laughs) keep your clothes on, you know? And she's like, no, I'm changing. And she'd just been in big t-shirts and shorts. And she put on these cute pants and her like cute bra, you know? It's like, (laughs) oh "Oh, my gosh. And, And we'd been working so much on her dynamic sitting balance and things like that. And she just sat right down on the bed, leaned over to the bottom drawer of her dresser, rummaged through her things, got herself dressed. And then we got in the car to go back to the rehab hospital. And she said, you girls want to stop at the, at the gas station and get some pop. And like her, <laughs> her whole personality just came out because oh, of the, so cool. everything we'd worked on at the rehab hospital in that simulated environment you know, working on an occupation-based practice. We did a lot of kitchen stuff in our ADL room with her because that was something she found enjoyment in. She got to the house. She changed. She was being hostess, trying to, you know, she showed us what was in the refrigerator. And we got back to the hospital and I told our medical director, I was like, she's ready to go home. She looks like she's not, but she's ready. Like, And I wouldn't have been able to serve as her advocate and her discharge date got moved up. She spent less time in the rehab hospital because we were able to do that visit and and showcase she was able, she did the steps, she tolerated the ride home, her home was set up. So she, I I just, I'll never forget. She's like, you want some pop? (laughs) (laughs) So we've had those success stories. I think other success stories are We've had patients who were really concerned about returning to their animals, you know, and the animals couldn't come to the hospital. So practicing all the animal care and the pet care was the driving force for their mobility and problem solving, getting home. And we were with certain uh, patients, we were able to work out that their family members were able to bring their pet out to the back therapy uh, back um, patio of the hospital so to see them with their pets you know reunited with their pets you know you can't that's not a fem score you know yeah, Miranda that, that's something very different but the activity analysis of the activity demands associated with pet care well pet owner is a role you know that's an identity and so I mean I could talk to you about success stories all the time people returning to the grocery store um, you know just the social aspect of being able to make change independently in the grocery store, in a complex environment, you know, what a victory that like literally the executive functioning required to stick to the grocery list. We would take the patients to the grocery store. They'd per- they'd make the list. They'd have to stay within a budget. And then we'd come back to the rehab hospital and cook the next day. And so, um, you know, success stories of patients cooking their family recipe and the aromas in the hospital and all of a sudden everybody's at 
that's a uh, patient's best friend as they're looking for handouts. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. And, and this is IDL training. You know, this is IDL training. This is sequencing. This is higher order thinking. Um, you just got to know how to document it and tap into the meaningful and purposeful things. And we, we started using the COPM a couple years into ours. And that really helped too. I mean, when finding out what's meaningful to patients can sometimes be laborious, especially patients with chronic conditions who haven't done a whole lot of occupational engagement for a long time, or they assume that that ship has sailed, you know, TV. I watch TV. I watch TV. Oh, that is it's the like, most oh, classic gotta, answer, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we got to dig a little deeper. Like, what else? And then dive. That's where that motivational interviewing kind of taps into that. And but the COPM has always been a great tool to identify with specificity. Like, what is it you need to do, want to do, have to do? There's like, you know, interest checklist. Um, there's the AOTA activity cards. You know, uh, activity cards. There's there's lots of different tools that are very low budget that your clinic or your hospital can purchase to kind of drive the train of tapping into those things. Well, in your example, and really everything you've been saying today really goes to show that when we can connect with our patients on a level of what is most meaningful to them and what will bring them purpose and what will motivate them to want to continue through rehab. When we can identify that and get people in their natural environments and really customize the rehab experience for what's important for the patients, outcomes are going to demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. And when we can show leadership that patient outcomes are improving, and especially with some of the lower budget recommendations you made, you know, it's one of those win-win situations where, you know, why why wouldn't we do these things, right? It's so true. And because you're, you're actually, you're doing patient assessment. I mean, when you're seeing the patient in a naturalistic environment, so you get a better idea of what life's really going to be at home. So many, especially in hospital settings, so focused on safety and not falling, which are, that's good. We don't want our patients to fall, you know, but we, we focus on that to the detriment of the patient where now we're, we're facilitating occupational deprivation. We're facilitating occupational restriction. You know, we're doing that as, as their healthcare professionals. And so the OTs can really be empowering to stay away from that, evaluate the safety in the environment, and then giving the patient the chance to take some low risks. And we're so risk aversive, you know, our environment is so risk averse that it it's a detriment to the patient, but that's where occupational therapy can really come in. And that might start with really working on the patient getting clearance to go to the bathroom themselves. Maybe they can't walk to the bathroom, but maybe they could use the bedside commode by themselves. Or maybe if you set their clothes out, then the next morning they can at least put their shirt on by themselves. Like start somewhere with something that is a part of the naturalistic routine and environment and just build off of that. And I mean, any nurse or CNA is going to be happy when they walk in and the patient's already dressed. <laughs> you know, they don't have to do it. Yeah, we can you be know? everyone's favorite team uh, member, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Becky, I feel like I could talk with you all day today and tomorrow about this. Uh, you have so much valuable insight. So we, you know, might just have to have another episode or something. Um, but to bring this conversation to a close, 
you've given us so much great advice. And if you could just give one final piece of advice, thinking about our listeners who are either current students or are within five years of beginning practice as an OT. What is that one take home you really want them to hear? I would say um, you need to know your core values. You need to know your core values and beliefs. And, And that's a small list, truly. I mean, you could have 50 core values and beliefs, but you really need to know those top three. Um, what do you stand for? What are you about? Um, and those those core values and beliefs, those really are the guiding lights of your entire life, your, your professional identity and your personal identity. And when those top three core values, you can align those professionally and personally, you're in your sweet spot at that point. So you're enjoying what your work, you're enjoying what you're doing. It's it's empowering your personal life because those three are in alignment. And when you know your core values, it also helps you know when to say yes to opportunities and when to say no to opportunities. Sometimes our professional drive will cause us to say yes to any advancement or any any climb the ladder opportunity, but not all opportunities are best for each individual person. And so my, my core values are family, faith, and security. And so I've been able to say yes and no to different opportunities when I frame it with, is me saying yes to this opportunity going to elevate family, faith, and security? Those are my top three. And if if it's not going to elevate my family, I know the answer is no, even though it's an awesome opportunity and all my mentors are saying, yes, Becky, yes, do it. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for you. And so really knowing those core values, it's just, and not just knowing them in your head, but writing them down, articulating them to somebody who's, you know, important to you, who can help hold you accountable. Um, I just can't say enough about the benefit of doing that soul searching and staying true to your essence of, of who you are. Um, you, your career will be much longer if you identify those early. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should just end right here because that was such wise advice that I know I'm going to need to think about a little bit more. It does take time. So second last thing before we end I love to read, and so something I've started doing on the podcast is asking for book recommendations from the guests who come on the show. So are there any books, they can be related to occupational therapy or just something that you're really excited about right now, Uh, but any book recommendations you have for us? Oh, gosh. So, actually, you prepped me because I have two books here. Um, There's this one book. Actually, one of my colleagues introduced it to me. I guess it was last year, um, When Breath Becomes Air. I don't know if you've heard of that book. You know, that rings a bell, but I have not read it. So tell us more. So um, one of my OT colleagues, um, she had a patient actually recommend it to her, and then she recommended that I, I read it. And it's by Dr. Paul Kalanithi, if I'm saying that correctly. I don't know can, if you can see it, Miranda, but um, you can Google it. 
Okay. And um, it is this extraordinary story of this neurosurgeon and his his career, but he he ends up getting lung cancer, and it walks through. It walks through the process of this as a as a healthcare practitioner now being on the other side of it. But it's it's like his memoir, and it talks about his life choices. And really, it, it is so OT. Although he doesn't talk about occupational therapy, he talks about the importance of meaning making and choosing to live. Like not not like I'm going to choose to beat this, choosing to to savor the life he he had and it goes through decision making with his family and his his wife and his even in his end stage of his disease they ended up having a child and the decision making process of that it was just it um transformational reading anytime you read someone's own personal words through a difficult situation but fabulous in helping you realize what's really important. You know, what it, I'm getting headaches and frustrations with the dumb department at my hospital and they won't listen to me and they won't pick up the laundry and whatever it is, you know, all those little tiny things that, that build up, you know. Sometimes you just need perspective and this book definitely gives perspective. And there's one more by Dr. Atul Gawande and it's called Being Mortal. And, he, and he's a physician as well. And he goes through and talks about people who kind of are, I don't mean to be so morbid, but it's like some end of life kind of thinking. But the reason he's talking about end of life is because it's that whole point of deciding what makes life worth living and how our our medical system is so focused on sustaining life and and having like extending life as long as possible and his whole perspective is what's the point of extending a miserable life like what makes life worth living and how do we elevate those things even in end of life and so um just to reading both of these i I revisit these quite often miranda just kind of soul searching a little bit and remembering it's a privilege to work with people. It's a privilege to be invited into their context, to be trusted, to enter the sanctuary of their life and their family. And um, I don't ever want to lose that it's a privilege to be invited in. And, and um, th- those two books always help me help me focus on that. There's there's one more. You guys probably heard of this all the time. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey, he he he's such a, a guru of of knowledge. So um, I have a, a wonderful mentor in my life, and she's a big Stephen Covey. Um, she just is a fanatic about his stuff, which she's turned me into a big Stephen Covey fan. So I do tend to read a lot of his words of wisdom as well. Well, thank you for those great recommendations. I'm going to add those to my Goodreads bookshelf for OT Uncorked so that listeners and myself can go back and take a look at those Goodreads. And before we close out, is there a way that listeners can contact you if they have any questions about the rich content that you shared with us today? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, I can definitely give you my email. Um, it's R Piazza. So R for Rebecca, even though go, I go by Becky. If you call me Rebecca, I won't know you're talking to me. So, but it's R Piazza. That's R P I A 
zza at usa.edu. Um, and um, I'm on Facebook, and I'm I'm a part of our Florida OT Association kind of community. Um, I don't I'm not on Twitter. Um, I can only manage so much social media. <laughs> but um, really, email is truly the best way to get a hold of me. I, I can be really responsive to email, and I the email I just gave you guys is the one that I I check the most often. But I would love I mean truly I love connecting with our OT. Uh, family, we have such a broad and beautiful community. So, would would love that. Would would encourage anybody who has a question really about anything. I'd be happy to connect you, and and I have a great community of OT colleagues as well. Maybe you have an interest in something, and I can connect you to that person. Well, thank you for making yourself available to us for follow up, and for taking the time to join me today. Just absolutely love our conversation, and excited about how this is going to encourage and inspire a lot of us to take those next steps towards really embracing occupation-based practice. Well, I, I'm happy. Absolutely, Miranda. Truly such a pleasure. And, you know, it's always so great to get to talk about other people who really worked hard to make this stuff work. So I don't ever want to say everyone's, anyone's name without them knowing, but, you know, I just, I was fortunate to be the leader, but it wasn't just me. It was the whole crew. Wow, hearing Becky talk about OT gives me that renewed sense of excitement about occupational therapy and what we bring to healthcare and to our communities. And I really hope you're feeling that way too. If you're looking for a next step or a new resource for more great OT content, check out otpodcasts.com. There are so many great OT podcasts out there that are enriching our broader OT community and we need to keep spreading the word. Thank you again for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked. As always, for access to the resources mentioned and to add your voice to the conversation, visit the resource blog at otuncorked.com and leave a comment. If you enjoyed this episode, share OT Uncorked with a friend, leave a review, and hit the subscribe button. Cheers. Cheers.